Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Amen. You may be seated. A number of years ago, there was a, a famous speaker, Christian noted speaker. His name is Tony Campolo. I'm sure some of you have heard of his name. He was a sociologist professor at a Christian college. And he was preaching in a sermon, and he said this. He said, First, while you were sleeping last night, 30,000 kids died of starvation or diseases related to malnutrition. Second, most of you don't give a, and he used a curse word. What's worse is that you're more upset with the fact that I said blank than the fact that 30,000 kids died last night. Now, that was actually pretty controversial. Ever since then, there have been a number of pastors who actually swear and use curse words in the pulpit. So it's not as shocking as it was initially. But for many who listened to that, it was quite shocking because cursing and preaching, they don't usually go together. And it it sort of brought this visceral reaction to the listeners intended so by Tony Campolo. But the reason was that when you think of curse words, they tend to be what we call profane or vile or and and profane is just another word for ordinary mundane we think of profanity as a a evil word but in actuality the point of the profane is to show how ordinary and plain it is and it's meant to contrast against the holy something that is to be separated that is so other that it is beyond our scope of understanding. And so the ordinary with the holy or the profane with the holy is so stark in its contrast that it's meant to give you a a shock to your system, to your ears. And when we think of this in application to God, that God is holy, he is other, He is someone who stands above all else, and the rest is ordinary, mundane, worldly, profane. That's why curses and curse words are so stark to the the person who understands holiness. But we need to know that curses exist because sin exists, and sin is rebellion against a holy, just, righteous God who is good and perfect in all of his ways. So from this passage in the Bible as a whole, I'd like to first look contextually at what the Bible says about curses and cursing. 
And then secondly is to note two observations from this passage in Galatians. First, we are cursed according to verses 10 through 12. And then second, he is cursed according to verse 13. So we are cursed and he is cursed. First, let's look at the, what the Bible says about curses. We learn about curses in the Bible very early on. Actually, we learn about it in the garden because that's the first time that curses are brought about in human history. After Adam and Eve rebel against God, remember rebellion is really the, the beginnings of the fruit of cursing and curses. God pronounces two curses. So it's God who curses first. And the first curse he pronounces is against the serpent, against Satan. And he's cursing essentially the world in Genesis chapter 3. Both of these curses would dramatically impact humanity because it completely changed our relationship to God himself. I like the way biblical theologian Meredith Klein describes the impact of the curse. He says this, The curse was the reversal of man's original and proper relationship to the world. He who should have exercised dominion over all the earth would be humiliated and tormented by the world. Instead of becoming a realm of cosmic freedom and luminous fulfillment, man's world would be turned into a prison of diabolical darkness. You see, when God cursed the world, what he did was he made this place no longer naturally fruitful. There would be labors and pains and sorrows and it wasn't just about the work that Adam would do over the world. It was the death, the tragedies, the trials. No longer would there be freedom and proper relationship between the world and God. The very world that God, remember, created as good and human beings as very good. But because of Adam and in Adam, our rebellion against God, from that point on, there would be this break. And that break would be symbolized and expressed mostly by a curse. And so God, who intended for us and the world to work perfectly in harmony with each one another, from Adam and Eve and all of our rebellion would now come suffering and famine and deadly viruses and even death. Let us not forget then that when we think of curses and curse words, we should think of rebellion against God. That's our instinct as to remember what that looks like. To take that which is good and so rebel against that which is good that it turns the good into something that is dirty and vile and ordinary. It's really the essence of these curses, and also, if you think about it, any curse word. Any curse word has the ordinary, turns the holy into ordinary, to the profane. And every curse flows out of a rebellion from this broken relationship. In the Bible, then, in this relationship between God and his people, which starts in the garden and moves throughout the, the course of Scripture, we see this brokenness time and time again. There's a word that describes the relationship between God and his people, and it's the word covenant. The word covenant has in mind an example such as marriage. Marriage is a covenant with a husband and his wife. 
And ultimately, that covenant also is between that couple and God. But when there is a, a fulfillment of that covenant, when husband and wife are honoring God and loving one another, there are blessings that flow out of the covenant, promises. The promises of prosperity and blessing from God to husband and wife. But should that covenant be broken, there's a curse. There's a consequence. And that consequence happens, that curse happens because of rebellion. It's not rebellion against husband to wife or wife to husband. It's a rebellion against us to God, man to God, woman to God. And whenever that happens, there are severe consequences. Always note that because when until we understand that curses are formed out of this rebellion and not simply some random act of God, we won't ever really understand this passage in Galatians 3. So Paul is trying to capture this essence in Galatians 3, 10 through 13 of these curses. And it looks back at God's covenant with his people. And this passage we see in Galatians 3, 10 through 13, that Paul says, as it is written, meaning he's saying this is described earlier. And if you have a Bible, you can always just go back to Deuteronomy 27 through 28, because that's what Paul is referring to when he says, as it is written. What happened is that in Deuteronomy, Moses brought the people of Israel because God commanded Moses to say, bring Israel and put them onto two mountains. And on these mountains, there, God is going to bring about his covenant. There's going to be a covenant that's going to be displayed. And on it, there's going to be blessings and curses. And every time they were to read these blessings, they were to say, amen, meaning I agree. But then on the other mountain, whenever they read the, these, the law and they said, if you do not abide by the law, you will be cursed. And then they had to say amen after that as well and say, I agree. Because again, there's a, a covenant relationship that shows that they are in relationship to one another, God and his people. When they obey the law, they will be blessed. Promises will be fulfilled. But when they disobey the law, when they break the law, there will be curses. And this is a constant theme throughout the Bible. When Job, for example, in the midst of his incredible pain, his wife, asks his wife, who is trying to get Job to curse God and die, this is what Job asks, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? It's the idea that when you follow God, you trust him both when you obey him, but even when you disobey him, you still trust God. And even when there's a consequence to our lack of following, we don't just simply curse God. When God told David through Nathan the consequences, and you could say the curses of his sin, he tells him in 2 Samuel twelve ten. now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And then God also tells David, the son to be born to him and Bathsheba, he's going to die. And so if you know the story, David prays and fasts. And despite that, the baby dies. And David's response, he accepts God's will in light of 
his sin and trust in God no matter what happens, even in light of the consequences. Moving forward to Paul, one commentator describes Paul's own personal understanding of this curse. And it was said that when you went to the temple priest and when you disobeyed the law and deserved punishment, you would receive 40 lashes minus one. So Paul had received whippings, and these are very, very painful lashes on his back multiple times. And they would do these 40 lashes minus one. He experienced it five times according to 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. And it's said that when you receive these lashes, these, these curses from Deuteronomy 27, 28, they're read to you while you're being receiving these lashes. So the physical scars on his body in some way reminded him of these curses. So there is no doubt that every Israelite knew when you disobeyed God, you are going to receive curses and you must bear them. And you need to recognize that they are going to be a part of not just your own life, but the life of your descendants. Now keep that in mind. That's the biblical background of these curses. Now let's look at verses 10 through 12. This is why when we understand that we are the ones who are cursed in verse 10, you could see that they're some of the darkest words in the Bible. If we look at verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Why is everyone cursed when you do not obey every word of the book of the law? Even Adam and Eve, when we think about it, they were not cursed when they sinned. It was Satan was cursed and the ground that was cursed, but not Adam and Eve. And so in that sense, even in the midst of the consequences of sin in Genesis chapter 3, there's still hope for Adam and Eve and for humanity. But then you look at verse 10, and that just seems so bleak because you have to consider that all who rely on the works of the law are to be cursed. This is actually a quote from Deuteronomy 27, 26. And it's expanded on, we'll see Deuteronomy 27, 26. It says, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, amen. And then Deuteronomy 28, 58 sort of expands on that idea. It says, if you are not careful to do all the words of the law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting and sicknesses, grievous and lasting. Actually, if you look at Deuteronomy 27, 28, you see this whole array of curses if you do not keep a certain aspect of the law. And the point that Paul is making here is he's saying, okay, Judaizers, you want to try to keep the law while turning to Christ? Well, you either need to keep the whole law, every single part of it, or you keep none of the law. Either you keep every point of the law or you bear the curse of the whole law. And Paul knows no one can keep the whole law perfectly all the time. You just cannot do it. And that's sort of how 
it works even for us. If you've ever promised someone, think again, something that is wrong, I won't raise my voice anymore. I promise. I won't ever say a swear word. I won't smoke anymore. I will have family worship all the time. I will have devotions every day. I will spend more quality time with my family. I promise. I will not gossip anymore. I will never look at anyone or anything lustfully. And the list is endless. Now, how many of us can say we have kept all of these all the time without failing once? Anyone able to say that? And there, there's a, I just gave a very small part of the list. There were hundreds of rules and laws that you could say, can I try to keep all these all the time, every day, every moment? If you then think, okay, let me create a program or a rule to help me to keep all my promises perfectly all the time, do any of those things, including your own willpower, does that ever help you to keep these perfectly? No, it can't. This is why if you ever try to base your hope on keeping the law by your own effort and righteousness, it is ultimately futile because what Moses is saying, what Paul is saying, what ultimately the Lord is saying is that unless you keep all points of the law perfectly, you are breaking the law and there's nothing you can do about it. If you read the Sermon on the Mount and you walk away saying, how can anyone keep what Jesus is saying perfectly? Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The point of it is to say you can't. And so how is it that we try to devise all sorts of plans and willpower and strength and say, I need to do this? So here's Paul's point. It's a really strongly logical point. You have to keep the whole law to keep the law. If you break the law, you are cursed. We are cursed because we cannot keep the whole law. And so his logic is irrefutable. And it's even practical. If you think about it, it's so practical because here's how it works. Rebellion against God doesn't just impact one part of your life. It's really the cancer of your soul and it spreads everywhere. For example, if I am driving on the road and a driver cuts me off, someone, and I get really angry and irritable towards that person, I curse him out. Now I come home and inwardly, I'm just still fuming. There's, there's a frustration. And then of course, when my young children come up to me, I'm just irritated. I'm irritable. And so I'm less patient. And when they put a little Lego there and I step on it, and you know how Legos feel when you step on one Lego, it hurts. And now They've taken my really bad day and already ruined it all the more. And then there's this face that comes onto our face that says, don't you come and talk to me or do anything bad to me and make my day worse than it is face. Anyone ever have that face? So everyone is, you're the, you know, you're the sun and every single planet, your family is your planet. They're all, all orbiting around you and making sure that, oh, you're okay. You're not as angry as you usually are. 
And then that leads to a conflict with, say, my wife. And this is all hypothetical, by the way. And, uh, and then let's say I'm in the middle of preparing a sermon, this sermon. I'm preparing a sermon about anger. And in my heart, I'm feeling this way. And I'm writing and typing about honoring God and pleasing him. And so with a lack of repentance, there's utter hypocrisy. And I start come on Sunday and I preach these words and it does an injustice to God's word. And there's this spiritual blindness that's happening in my own family. Now I'm saying it to people who I have under my care. And maybe that, even false words, even that type of hypocrisy in some way, spiritually speaking, impacts you and how you impact your family and the people at your job, this then flows from you to your family. And if their family is right now, I know I'm exact. You can say, Sam, you're exaggerating a little bit. Is, is it really that tight? The, I think the point of it is to say that my sin, just like COVID, has this incredible power to be contagious. And it has many variants. If we think there's a Brazilian variant of COVID and a UK variant of COVID, well, sin has infinite variants and they're spreading out in ways that we cannot ever imagine and there is no mask that can cover it. And so when that happens, we should not be surprised that just me having an angry heart, me as an individual, is making a lasting impact to so many more people and even generations. Sin has massive impact. It is terrible. It is never isolated to one sector of your life because it's rebellion against God. And he's the one who created us to be made in his image. And if we are trying to think that it has no impact on us, I mean, it's like taking our physical faces and trying to rip it off, saying it looks terrible. We want to look nothing like our parents. Well, sin does that spiritually. How then can we ever try to imagine that change happens following Christ by doing more? I hope you see the, just the foolishness of that idea. That's why Paul is so stark and strong in this particular letter to say that if we actually think that our effort and work and programs and strategies and plans and intellect and all of our experiences and all of that somehow makes us more um, of a person who follows and trusts God and is able to be pleasing to him, if somehow that's what it takes, we have no idea about the impact of sin in our lives. That's what Paul is ultimately saying. So then we see that in verses 11 through 12. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God. No one. By the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. If you try to live by the law, you're going to be judged by the law. And you will bear the curses of the law. And that's a terrifying thing. There is hope, however. The hope is in verse 13. And the hope comes in a shocking way. He was cursed. He was cursed. As verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us. He bought us back. 
from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We simply do not appreciate verse 13 enough. We don't grapple with it. We don't, we're not impacted by it enough. Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23 is the background for verse 13. It says this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a, a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, if you can just imagine this horrific sight. When a person in Deuteronomy commits a capital offense, the first thing that happened is they were stoned to death. So their body is already torn apart by all these rocks and stones. And then to show the extent of, not of the crime that they committed and the shame that they bear, as well as the attempt to try to show everybody else don't do this or you're gonna, this is going to happen to you, which is why there's crucifixions, why the Romans crucified people, why there was all these hangings, because it was meant to show the people do not disobey or this will happen to you. It's meant to show fear. But what God is saying here is it wasn't about trying to model fear or to get you to not commit these crimes. Rather, it was to show the curse. It was a physical manifestation of the spiritual reality of a rebellion against God. And I know some of you might be thinking of that and thinking, that just seems so horrific of God to do that. But I would say this, is that we have no idea of how dark our sin really is. If we really did, then perhaps this wouldn't be so horrific, but we might say, just like Job, Shall we receive blessings and not, not suffering? Or David being able to receive even the death of his son and even knowing that there's going to be the curse of a sword being in his family for the rest of his days. If you really understand sin, then you actually understand why the curse does look this way. So it was this gruesome sight that they would hang a person on a tree to show what the manifestation of a curse physically looks like. It wasn't to, just to ward off people from doing such things. It was to show the abject rebellion against the living God. And we see then that when we head into this season, next week, where we remember the Lord being hung on a tree, we have to remember not just that he was physically beaten. And I think it's a mistake to only dwell there, to only think of the cross as a physical pain. Now, here's the thing. If, just think about all the martyrs within the church throughout the church's history. Some were burned at the stake, eaten and torn up by lions, uh, fought and, and killed in, in gladiatorial arenas. And some went bravely, courageously. Do you think that Jesus was a coward when he was at the garden saying, Father, remove this cup from me? Was it that he was so fearful of physical death? If 
Christians, ordinary people, could undergo physical suffering and go with such boldness and courage, are we thinking actually that Jesus was scared of physical death? I tell you that you're misunderstanding why Jesus bore such agony in in the Garden of Gethsemane that his blood was pouring out as he sweated. It had nothing to do with the physical aspect of it, but so much more to do with this. It was the curse. To bear the curse of every single human being, to buy back, to redeem. And it wasn't just to bear curse. Look at how Paul describes it. He was to become a curse. I don't think that word is there unintentionally. Paul is saying there is a a full manifestation of the bearing of it, of being cursed by God to say that every one of our sins that deserves all the curses of God, Jesus was bearing that at the cross. So when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because he bore the curses that we deserve. He became a curse, or as Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin for us. It's not that Jesus sinned or actually did anything that deserved the curse actually himself, but legally, as we've learned, all the punishment all the fullness of that punishment that we deserved, the punishment of hell and damnation, condemnation forever and ever, Jesus became that. He bore that. He, he fully took that upon himself, and he did nothing wrong. Now look at these two most precious words in verse 13. For us. He became a curse for us. He who was perfectly sinless, perfectly righteous, did nothing wrong. But why did he become curse personified? For us. This is why Paul is so strong in his argument. He's saying, do you really think if Jesus went to the lowest hell, spiritually speaking, to become a curse for us, that somehow... You and I, what we do or don't do makes us unrighteous before God. Like That's a blasphemy. It's saying that we don't believe that Jesus who died on this cross means anything to us. If you start saying, it has to be my effort. It has to be my goodness. It has to be the fact that I go to church every Sunday. That has to count for something. If, if I surrender my body to the flames, if I go into the mission field and die and martyr myself, if we feel angry and frustrated because we have given something of our lives and we say, God, I've been a pastor, I've been a missionary, I've done all this, and you haven't blessed me? How dare you, God? That's a curse against the cross. That's a blasphemy. Because by doing that, we're saying, I merit God's favor. You should, God, you owe me because of how good I've been. And when we do that, we say the cross is meaningless to us. Ultimately, we say, Jesus, you know, thank you for the cross. It works for me about 90% of the time, but not that 10%. Because that 10%, I feel that 10%, and I'm owed 
a better life than what I have right now. That is a blasphemy because what it's saying is that the cross is not enough. It's not enough to give me all that I need. And because of that, we're never freed. I tell you, if right now you are struggling with anger, sorrows, um, and, and we are not turning to Christ, and all we feel is a sense of anger towards him and, and frustration towards him, without ever looking at the cross, we are missing out on the gospel. This is why Paul says in Galatians 1, you can see why not believing in Jesus became a curse. And according to Paul in Galatians 1, you are accursed if you don't believe this. So you either believe Jesus was cursed for you or you're cursed because you're preaching a different gospel. A different gospel doesn't believe Jesus was cursed for you. You see that? A different gospel believes that actually Jesus was maybe partially cursed. Maybe he bore most of your sins. Maybe he bore most of your righteousness, but some of it is your righteousness. I give my tithes, Lord. I attended church. I raised nice children. I, I didn't swear. I didn't smoke. I didn't smoke pot. I didn't do anything bad. So why am I suffering so much? And I don't deserve this. That's a false gospel. You know, we, we believe in a God who gave his life, who is cursed for us, who gave everything for us. We're going to sing a closing song, a hymn, when I say, survey the wondrous cross. And the last part says, we're the whole realms of nature mine. That would be far too small an offering. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You know, if I had owned everything and I gave it all to you, Lord, it'd still be a far too small an offering comparatively to Christ becoming a curse for us. But instead, what Jesus wants is our all, our hearts. And I tell you that when you give your heart to him and you say, Lord, I surrender all, Every part of me. It's the road to freedom. It's why we so lack joy in our lives. And if you lack joy, my friends, it's because perhaps you have not really understood you deserve to be on that cross. I'm not talking physically. I'm talking spiritually. We deserve condemnation. We deserve to be stoned and hung spiritually. And yet, Jesus was hung for us. I hope you remember that. That's your power. Next week on Easter Sunday, we'll talk about this curse and how it actually practically plays out to our resurrection. Because we don't just simply die, we rise again. And that's good news. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, it's so good to know that the story doesn't end at the cross. The story ends with death being defeated forever. The curse has been upended. It's been reversed. And we are alive in Christ. It's why Paul, your servant, went so hard here to try to convince us, to show us why are we striving so much to please you when 
Instead, what you ask for is faith, to trust the God of the cross who gave everything so that we might have life in you. So Lord, we want to recognize that there is nothing we can give you in this world, not our strength, not our efforts, not our willpower, not our good deeds, not our money, not our intelligence, not our children, not our marriages. And perhaps we've tried so hard to do such things and it's actually been self-defeating. And it's caused us instead to feel frustrated and sometimes sinfully, rebelliously, even angry against you. When you have shown us, the answer has always been before us. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He was hung on a tree. May we remember that. May that be our power, our strength. We thank you for the cross, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.